everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Jess Mastercola. And today we're going to talk about sepsis in EMS. Is this a thing that we can treat? Is this a thing we should treat? Uh, we're going to dispel some of the rumors from it, and we're also going to go into some of the history of it. So, Dan, start us out. Talk to us about the actual treatment of sepsis in the pre-hospital environment. Well, you know, sepsis is funny because I don't even think the in-hospital people know what they're doing with this just yet. Sure. Um, there have been so many schools of thought in the past. Um, and for those of you, most of you in the podcast world, if you're listening to the Overrun, you've listened to some of the other medical podcasts. Mm. Uh, sepsis was a big thing. And, you know, we went through this era. I, I like to think of sepsis as the first the first condition in FOMED that actually got debunked by right. itself. Like remember, it was, remember for a hot second we knew what we were doing and Oh then, God. And then, then it just data came out all we were wrong. Like, you know, I remember the three part interview with Manny Rivers on MCRID and everyone yeah. was talking about goal directed therapy and if you weren't giving liters of fluid to your patients and putting in central venous lines, yeah. you were failing them and it was all wrong. So the, just as a background, early goal directive therapy was a this is in like God, 2012, 13. It was it wasn't that long ago. It was yeah, like 11 or 12. Recent. Yeah, and it it had the potential to be sort of an outcomes changing treatment. Um, and you know, in an example of everybody kind of getting on board a little bit too early, everyone bought into early goal directive therapy. Oh, it caught fire. Uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, projects were getting thermometers. They had you know, cooling vessels for their saline. Like it, it turned into this whole thing. And essentially, it turns out that, you know, if you overload your patients with fluid, that they get worse because drowning people is frowned upon in medicine. What? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've been doing it all wrong all these years. Um, and we weren't identifying the people who were really septic right. as opposed to people who are just sick who needed a little bit of supportive therapy. Right. So we, we didn't really. And part of it is that it, it's possible that early goal directive therapy works if it's done right. Uh, and we were just doing it wrong. Uh, for a long time, but I, I think the data pretty much stands right, out. But like I say, it's you know, the first podcast era, you know, treatment or procedure or regimen that right. the trajectory was. It blew up on the scene. It came out. Everybody had to do it, and then it got debunked, and it was gone. Yeah, and that was over the course of about eight months. Yeah, that was that was yeah. Like, it was like from I mean I don't know if it was eight months. It was gone. a couple of years, but I mean it just it was gone. Yeah, and is, is it was part of the problem maybe that we're. <laughs> You're essentially following a flow chart and it's very rigid set of criteria. And instead of using like your, you know, discretion, it's just, oh, this it's person. An that's a great point. You know, isn't that, that I feel like that's part of the problem, right? Well, I, I think that part is a great point because and I think you're making, I think it's one size doesn't fit all. Of course. Um, one of the big things that was, was stressed was trying to find a way to screen patients for, potentially septic conditions and you know there's been a lot of acronyms the two biggest ones you'll see is sears and mm. q sofa q sofa is a good one yeah. it is but here's the problem they're not very specific right you know somebody can meet sears and sears criteria is a heart rate above 90 among other things there's a heart rate of 90 respiratory rate above 20 um there's some other things involved in that but that fits a huge basket of the population. But, but I feel like that also means that I would fit that criteria when I'm sick at home and Correct. treating myself. And that's right. what we were finding. And that's right? one like, of the things yeah, that it, they were we, finding. We rapidly, we again, we, we talk about overcorrection a lot on the show, mm -hmm. but we found in people who just had a general illness were fitting SERS criteria. Right. So we were treating them as if and they were And I septic. think the problem with SERS criteria is 
there's a th- four different criteria, but you only need to meet two or greater. Right. Right. So if I have a heart rate of 90 or greater, and then my respiratory rate is greater than 20, I now meet SERS criteria. Right. But which, what if I just say, walked you, up the stairs really fast? you just went fa- running, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think, so I think that's kind of part of the issue is it, we're using this flow chart, which I, I think flow charts are nice. They look nice and they're helpful. And I think they're a good way to kind of get the brain juices flowing when you're trying to figure out what's wrong with someone. But I think um, provider discretion is way more important than following a flow chart. Well, absolutely. And because early goal directive therapy started, I guess, changing people's opinions on it, we started having, um, you know, guidelines, criteria, and checklists that were made in the hospital for, like, if someone meets a SERS criteria, then they have to be treated this way. Mm-hmm. Right? So they have to receive fluid. They have to receive, you know, antipyrotic. Right. And, and they stuff. get these bundles that they right. have to hit these numbers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in hospital, again, it's hard enough to diagnose this in hospital. Because yeah. remember, sir, like, just got two of them. Um, the other ones are temperature of below 36 Celsius or above 38 Celsius. So... That's pretty wide. Okay, right. Yeah. And not to mention the 100.4. Like, uh, thir- so 38 Celsius is 100.4 Fahrenheit. And 100.4 Fahrenheit, like, I feel like I've hit that with just a common cold. It's possible. It, you know. It right. And then, and that's kind of what we're discussing. We're like, there was, it was a good idea that kind of we ran with the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening after all this kind of SERS backlash um, and after early girl directive therapy was kind of debunked, is we went back to just not really treating sepsis, where it went right. from we're not treating sepsis to now everybody yeah. gets treated as sepsis, and now we're just not really doing it anymore. Right. So the question that comes up is, can we treat sepsis in the field, or should we treat sepsis in the field? So, and as luck would have it, it turns out there's actually data that supports this. Mm-hmm. Yay, Yay, data. data. <laughs> and, and the important <laughs> thing to remember, too, is here's the thing that I think we miss from the EMS perspective sepsis when it happens in the when it actually does happen these people who are septic have almost a 40 percent mortality right 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 so and that's been borne out in the literature that's a really high, that's higher than mi that's mm-hmm. higher than stroke that's higher than trauma 40 percent of the people that get this will die right and this is one of those things where we're and these are getting the s- getting to them earlier and starting treatment earlier might actually improve right. your outcomes. But the these are the same people that are getting discounted as general weakness, malaise, mm-hmm. not doing well, failure to thrive. There's a whole list of things that baskets that these people fit in. Right. And what happens, I think, and this again, we we've talked about on the show, EMT level care really is the impetus for whether somebody's going to get better from pre-hospital interventions or they're not. This is where the EMTs make a difference because EMTs look at these people and they're like, oh, it's general weakness. It's just BS. She's not feeling good. Let's take, we'll just take her to the hospital. You bring her in and you tell the triage nurse, eh, it's nothing. And they put her over on the side right? because she's not as critical as some of the other ones. Not un- yet. Until her blood pressure tanks or her maps in the toilet. Right, or until she actually She's unconscious shocking. and yeah. she's sick. And now all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, what happened? You know, this is a this is a problem. We should have an ability to, to identify these people. But I agree with Jess is that I think sometimes when we apply straight criteria to something, I think we include too many people. There's got to be a thing for Gestalt. There's got to be right. a place for 
judgment where, hey, you've got these things, plus I think there's something else here. No, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, there there needs to be a way to kind of like look over the and that's EMT qual that's an yep. EMT qualification. That's absolutely something an EMT can do. Sure, yeah. absolutely. So the first thing I want to talk about is we have this study uh, that comes out of the University of Missouri, um, or uh, sorry, Missouri University uh, Emergency Medicine. So this is from Emmerich et al. This is pre-hospital hemodynamic improvement in patients treated for suspected sepsis. So what this study did, and this is a poster presentation that came out um, in Boone County in Missouri, they. Uh, developed their own pathway, their own criteria for what would fit sepsis uh, protocol. And essentially it was uh, patient hyperthermic greater than 101 or hypothermic for a uh, cold sepsis 98.8, um, with a heart rate greater than 90 beats per minute, respiratory rate of greater than 20, or if they were being mechanically ventilated. Then they had a shock index that they used or a mean arterial pressure of less than 65. The SAT was below 90 or an end tidal below 25 and a serum glucose of 120. So again, this is all someone who classic signs for hypermetabolism, hyper you know, secondary fever and right. infection like that. So effectively what would happen is uh, one of their fire medics would start an IV, large bore IV. The um, medic that would come on scene then would draw blood cultures and labs, you know, typically you know, gray top tube, all that kind of stuff, what okay. they would do in the ER. And then if the systolic was below 90, they would administer a fluid bolus and they would try and get the systolic to around 90. Um, and if that didn't happen after the first bolus, they would give 250 cc's. If the systolic was above 90, they would just monitor and transport, right? So we already know that the systolic of 90 is perfectly appropriate. It doesn't have to be you know, right. 100. It's kind of just an arbitrary timeline that we did. So, right. So given all this... That seems like it makes sense. Mm. Right. And this, this kind of changes from you know, the multiple boluses that we were giving in the past. It's just, all right, so we'll just give one bolus, try and get the pressure to 90 so they can perfuse. And if, you know, we just want to try and get it up to 90, whether we give a liter or 250 cc's after mm -hmm. that. Um, so, you know, next question is, how did that actually work? So what they found was, I think, are actually kind of interesting. So what they would do is they would administer all this protocol. And what they found was the patient's temperature, on average, dropped from 38.2 Celsius to 37.5. They would have rises in systolic and diastolic blood pressure on arrival to the ER. They would have an increase in Glasgow scale when they got to the ER. They had a decrease in heart rate, an increase in oxygen saturation, and a decrease in respiratory rate. So essentially the conclusion to this was the significant improvement in vital science suggests pre-hospital management temporized sepsis pathophysiology until definitive care was reached. And this means that pre-hospital providers improved aspects of downstream care by giving IV access, drawing labs, cultures, and activating a sepsis alert before reaching the hospital. So... This is kind of preliminary. Again, this was a poster. This wasn't a, This isn't published data necessarily, um, but it's it's interesting because it seems. I think our concern for the pre-hospital environment is is this the thing that we can treat, and are we worried that medics are going to screw it up? And it kind of turns out from this this Missouri article that that's not really the case. Actually, treating patients ahead of time kind of makes them better, at least on arrival. This doesn't follow outcomes though. That's what I'd like to know. I mean, right. mm. did this make a difference in length of stay, length of morbidity, length of mortality, you know, morbidity, mortality, length of acuity? Are the people treated, what I'd really like to know is, the people that they treated with this protocol, did they go to the ICU or did they go to a telemetry floor? Did right. they go to a regular medical floor? Um, is that something, because we know that that improves outcomes. Sure. Um I think it does. I think if you probably went back through their stuff and you went retrospectively, you'd probably see less length of stay, mm -hmm. le, uh, less acuity. And I think that's where paramedicine has the the, the ability to influence uh, patient care as a whole. Right. Well, and so that's kind of, and all that this paper, or this poster looked at was just essentially fluid administration. 
Right. Right. So we're just adding nothing, more fluid to it. We're nothing. Not, we're not actually treating the illness. So I, I think that fits very well in the acute care setting. Um, and I, I think the information is interesting, and I think it can certainly change at least the preliminary treatment in the field. Mm-hmm. But then the next thing has to be, well, okay, so if we're giving fluid and the patients are getting better from it, what's stopping paramedics from administering antibiotics? Now, of course, one of the things that we run into is there's lots of places where the states just won't let the medics administer antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the first thing. There's also that idea of, well, you have to have cultures. Because if we sure. draw before we give cultures, then obviously it's we're not we're going to alter able, the results. It's going to alter the mm-hmm. results. Um, there's different schools of thought on that. I think there's some places that say, you know, don't worry about it. The sepsis is more damaging. Start, you know, start broad spectrum antibiotics. We'll figure it out later. I don't know. I think the jury's out on that. Well, it, so the question, I guess, would be, you know, it's, you know, is there any efficacy to us doing that? I have no problem with us drawing cultures in the field. Um, and invariably... Oh, the, the lab does. I, I'm yeah. sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but again, but, it, you know, another thing, too, with drawing cultures is that there's always going to be an argument that, for some reason, you know, the the vials aren't crash-proof, so we can't carry them in the ambulance. Uh, yeah. What there's, do you there's, mean? There's, a, there's always some silly argument where if we carry things that are made of glass, they're going to break. Not all of them are glass, We shouldn't carry though. made of black. Like, oh, I'm not saying that they are oh. at all. I'm sa- so th- typically whenever we try to implement something new in the field, the arguments that come across will be something silly or a facile argument like, oh, well, they're made of glass. You can't carry that. Despite right. the fact that our epinephrine bristol jets are made of glass, mm-hmm. all of our medications are contained in glass. glass. Mm-hmm. But like, oh, you can't carry like right. a glass well, culture. I mean, set. and there's also, you know, glass like on the windows and the windshield. <laughs> <laughs> The ambulances aren't crash proof either. Now again, we're we're <laughs> like, again understand. in healthcare. We're the ones that get the weird. You know, this is like the, the weird excuses. The weird excuses <laughs> like, well, you can't do that because obviously today is purple. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And well, therefore, like, that means reasons. And yeah. Or like you know, you can't carry a scalpel as a paramedic, but here, take all the sharp needles you would like. Yeah. Take oh, and then yeah. take a large bore needle for chest decompression. That's right. fine. Yeah. Just no scalpel. Yeah. Deliver all this electricity through a thing. Yeah. But don't. You can't, right. We can't certainly can't. Then you we can also have an intraosseous. Yeah. Access. Yes. You can take, drill take into drill. <laughs> drill into someone's bone, but certainly do not. Don't, don't cut anything. Don't oh cut anything goodness. because that's a bad thing. Uh, all right. But so what about? But what about the scalpel and the OB kit? Oh no. Uh, that's, that's different. That's it's different. a different scalpel. That's for. That's for you know. That's for special things. Yeah. Which we shouldn't be doing that either. <laughs> so, all right. So we are. We, so now we know that uh, at least theoretically, giving fluid can make patients better pre-hospitally, right? So yeah, giving some fluid, right? So if the next thought experiment is, can we give antibiotics in the field based on our principal diagnosis? I mean, like fitting all this criteria, right? You know, they have a fever. We know they have some type of pathogen that's making them hypermetabolic, right? We have all these things, and we can reasonably assume that they're septic, right? So this is right. coming out of the Netherlands. This is the FANTAS trial, um, which I really love the name of this as well because um, it sounds like a superhero to me. So the way that they did this was they they did a randomized control open label trial uh, in 10 large regional ambulance services that covered 34 secondary and tertiary care hospitals in the Netherlands. So the first problem it's is that big. it is. It's mm-hmm. a big big area. Um, I like that it's randomized. I like that you know there's a control aspect to it. I'm not crazy about the open label trial, but I also don't know how else you would do it. You know, yeah. I, I don't know that you can really placebo this control is, for this is the problem. Right. This is the problem mm. of evidence based medicine is that the, the, the standards sometimes don't meet reality. Right. Right. And like, the, uh, you know, randomizing is great. But again, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that at least ethically. I was about to say, like, like, aren't the ethics of it like you're going to give a placebo to someone that 
really needs it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like here's, here's we're an gonna, antibiotic. We're gonna maybe random, we're gonna randomize out a defibrillation study to <laughs> oh a sham dose <laughs> or an actual dose. Like, all right, come on. Like, so I love EBM, but let let's get yeah, let's get realistic. So they compared the effects of early administration of antibiotics in the ambulance and the usual care. Eligible patients were randomly assigned in a one-to-one block randomization. This is all wonky stuff I don't really want to get into, but essentially they gave ceftriaxone uh, 2,000 milligrams in addition to care or fluid resuscitation and supplemental oxygen. Um, they looked at all-cause mor- all mortality at 28 days uh, and after intention to treat. So so they didn't do weight-based drosephine. They did just a straight... 2,000 two thousand milligrams okay. in addition to universal care. So, okay. and so th- this is another thing, too. In EMS, we're very bad at guessing weights. Well, yeah, so for I think sure. I, I mean, th- wouldn't yeah. anyone... Be? Like, I don't know. I'm not good at looking at someone. And no, I mean, right. think about guessing. everybody in trauma gets a gram of ANSEF whether you this want is true. it or yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I, I don't, I also don't really have a problem like the, you know, the arbitrary dosing. I think that's fine, you know, especially if you're mm-hmm. laying out a protocal. Um, cause you only get into a point where it's like, well, they were actually 78 kilograms oh and you wanted to dose them. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, so how big was this sample? So they had 2,698 patients that were enrolled between June 30th of 2014 and June 26, 2016. Uh, of those, they had 2,672 patients who were actually included in the intention to treat analysis. And, the, and we're going to go, they have all these numbers in here. Um, there's a handful of patients who were readmitted after 28 days. But essentially what the big outcome from all this is, is that in patients with varying severity of sepsis, EMS personnel training uh, improved early recognition and care of the whole care, uh, whole acute care chain. However, giving antibiotics in the ambulance did not lead to improved survival regardless of illness severity. So we can give antibiotics but it doesn't really change their outcomes. Okay. So this might be a moot point, but I wonder if there's any wiggle room that we can get into based on the two things we've talked about. Hmm. That's interesting. <sighs> yeah. I, I don't know. really know what to make of that, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm kind of stumped on that. Like, it doesn't... Like, it works, but it doesn't work. Right. So... Uh, I guess, and what I guess were, what what the, the question I'm is... I'm sorry, what were the endpoints again? What did they... Yeah. So they looked at all-cause mortality as the biggest thing. Uh, I think at, that's at, too wide. At, at 28 yeah. days. So at, of, of that group, um, looks like they had a, ha- a handful, 119 patients were readmitted within 28 days. Mm-hmm. Um, 120 patients, it's 8% of the sample side, had died in the intervention group. 93 had died in the usual care group. So what they're saying is that you have 93 who died in the usual care group, 120 uh, in the treatment group. So there's no significant change... In, yeah, but in what? Survival yeah, but all cause mortality is like okay, we discharged them the home and they walked in front of a bus. Sure, like yeah. <laughs> uh, that but doesn't like, but really that, help, right? I mean, but that's that's absolutely going to be an outlier in, in that case. You know, I, mean, I think they're they're kind of looking at generally. You know, no, I, I, I'm but, being facetious here, but right. but let's look at it for what matters. Like all cause mortality to me is kind of not a great endpoint. Like again, I'm going to go back to. How many more days does somebody in sepsis stay in the hospital as opposed to somebody who was treated in the field? Sure. How much sicker were those people by the time we got everything marshaled to to, to take care of them mm-hmm. as opposed to if we recognized in the field, gave some fluid, gave some pressors, or started antibiotics? Right. Like, that to me matters. Yeah, I I don't know. I feel like... What matters most is just recognizing in general. I, I've had BLS crews before come in and drop a patient off to me, and I say, did you have medics with you? Because the patient looks like absolute garbage. Right. And they're like, well, right. no, it was just uh, you know, for weakness. I'm like, well, you could look at the patient and 
no, they look like death. Like this person is right. like diaphoretic so, and pale. Okay, and so let so me I think maybe early recognition in general would be nice because that patient probably could have used at least a little bit of IV fluids to like boost. It would have bought. It would have bought, bought some time so that they. That's get the thing. To it me, would buy right? you time in the emergency right. department. Time uh, to get the things you needed done. Time to get the labs. Time to get to you know where are we going to go with this? Time to grab a doc and say, hey, mm-hmm. look, you got to come take a look at this one. Well, before her map is forty. Or maybe like I come into the room and go, oh, my patient is tachycardic at one sixty and his blood pressure is seventy over thirty and Oops. his respirations are twenty seven. Oops. And the BLS just put him in the bed and mm-hmm. left. Like right. That that's I don't know that's very strange and to that, me because if I was a BLS a if that was my patient on the ambulance I would have immediately been like uh, this patient's very sick and where's my <laughs> medic unit Thank well that's you. that's one of the things you know? that I think we need to reinforce with training and with with you know EMT is that you know here is something that you have an opportunity to really make a difference on mm-hmm. this is not something that you know this is not something that waiting makes it can help right so. And it really does come down to that first EMT a lot of times who walks in the room and they have the ability to determine what the inertia of this this the, or the trajectory of this patient's care is going to be. Yes. So if you walk in and you're like, oh, you know, they look like stink and they're tachycardic and we actually count a respiratory rate. Right. You oh know, my God. and <laughs> instead of just putting 18 on every chart yeah. with lung sounds clear, we actually listen <laughs> mm-hmm. and we actually count a respiratory rate. And we find out, wow, it's actually 28. Something's not right here. Right. So those are the big things. If you're looking at someone who has these big like red flag symptoms, is that something that we could you know, theoretically treat? So this is actually looked at at the British Paramedic Journal, uh, which is to say a journal in Britain that looks at paramedic sciences, which is just not really a thing we have Wait, in what? America. What? No. <laughs> so they have their own journal? Their own hmm. paramedic journal. Oh. Imagine that. I wonder what um, that's like. So this is March 2008. Hold on. Dan Googles <laughs> well, I mean, like, English like, immigration. Yes, yeah. I know Brexit, but <laughs> I'm willing to how suffer. How do I get to England? I love driving on the left side of the road. Uh, <laughs> So this is uh, March 2018. The feasibility of paramedics delivering antibiotic treatment uh, pre-hospital to red flag sepsis patients, a service evaluation. So essentially what this did was this is a prospective six-month feasibility study that they did uh, that they did in, March, in May of 2016, essentially looking at the feasibility of paramedics giving a broad-spectrum antibiotic to patients who had big red flag symptoms. So um, it's not really delineated in a lot of this stuff, but essentially it comes down to, you know, tachycardia, um, tachypnea, fever, that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and, you know, they, they mentioned, like, the sepsis mortality rates, 36%, um, and 50% for patients who are in septic shock. So especially if you have someone who's shocky, these are patients that would fit that bill. Um, so you can just throw a broad spectrum into it. So they had 20 paramedics that went into this program. They put them through a training program, and they found 113 patients during this time, um, and 107 of those 113 were confirmed as having an infection that led to sepsis. Oh, wow. Um, 98 blood samples were successfully drawn by the medics, uh, and only seven were reported as contaminated, compared to 8.5% of samples taken by the staff during the ED at the same time. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) You should come see how some of... The nurses obtained blood cultures. So before we get into it's more, embarrassing. But like, so before we get into more of the data on that, the that kind of dispels the whole thing of like, well, if you draw labs in the back of the ambulance, it's dirty and they're contaminated. I never kind of understood 
that mentality. I never, like, I, I remember before I started in the hospital and, you know, my, my now husband was working the medic unit and his particular, um, company stopped drawing blood work because the hospital didn't want it anymore Right. out of the idea that it was contaminated. And then the hospital would then, when the patient arrived, put in their own IV and then discontinue the medic's IV. Because mm-hmm, it's and dirty. And I've never understood that. And that happens to me now. Oh, there, are, there are trauma departments that will exchange our ET tubes because, Why? The, tu- because the tubes are dirty. What does that mean, dirty? Like, like that, yours that is going to be cleaner? Yeah, like that, I, that's that's literally a theory. I, I, yeah. Look, I think there's a point to that after 24 hours. Maybe. Oh, sure. Oh, you want to put the, a pre-hospital. But you change it anyway at that I point. think you want to change out your pre-hospital stuff at 24 right. hours and exchange out your tube. Sure, but let's be, sure. But, but come on, but let's like be in honest. But in the acute phase of them arriving at the hospital, yeah. I don't give a... I mean, excuse my French, I don't give a damn right. that this Whoa. was placed. I, I don't care <laughs> it was placed by the medic unit. Like If I have an 18 gauge from the medic unit and this patient is severely hypotensive, why in the hell am I going to sit there for 45 minutes trying to get another line good when point. I have a oh, perfectly sure. good line? Look, there's, there's, pla- there's places now that are like, they'll do dirty femorals. Yeah. And they'll say, if the patient's really sick, they'll like, drop a femoral. They'll just be like, look, it's coming out in 24 it, yeah. hours. I'm yeah. not, like, we're not keeping it, like, but for right now to get the access, go for it. Yeah, what's more important, them having a possibly dirty IV access or them dying? And I've, I've like, had, I, I don't understand. I've had labs drawn, and obviously this is anecdotal, but I've had labs, I've drawn labs in the field, and I've had them thrown out because yeah. they weren't labeled properly, <laughs> as if I was with other patients during my time right it must it might have been someone else's blood yeah you never you know, know that it's yeah. very it's a it's a very yeah. possible so, so thing I, I i do that think you that had someone's blood that wasn't yeah. your patient but there's but there's this a is lot also this is also a product of <laughs> your in-hospital labs and they're very good people and they're they very are. good but they are a, they're a little extreme, neurotic well because clea and the organizations that accredit them mm-hmm. are so rigid in their guidelines of what they have to do that it almost turns them neurotic. They have yeah. to be the okay. way they are. There's which, no deviation. Which I get. Like, but it's at the same time. Like, then why are we doing this? Look, why? I can't. Look, I can't teach my staff how to use an iStat. Okay, because I have a Bachelor of Arts and I don't have a Bachelor of Science. What? I mean, that's that's excessive. I, I mean, like that's where they go. But that's yeah. that's the that's the inertia that you're fighting. You can't teach someone to use a very simple piece of technology Correct. because you have the wrong because the guidelines degree. because which which is funny because I think okay. I have the right we, bachelor's degree by the way. We often oh. say that that medicine is an art and not a science, so mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so there's that. You know. So there's that too. But but, but, but the was, point is that is, is that yeah. lab guidelines are extremely rigid. They are always very nervous about losing their about losing that accreditation, and we haven't been able to get over that effective filter to get the lab people comfortable. Okay, I'll buy that. And I don't I, know if uh, we yeah. can get yeah. that, And that I don't know wh- how do you get there. Well, that's, that's, I don't know. that's that multidisciplinary approach where you have to actually have people come in from your project, talk to the ER, talk to, like, you have to have a meeting, mm-hmm. and then you have to have a meeting about the meeting, and then a meeting about what, how people felt about oh that God, meeting. Oh, God, I feel like I'm back in the <laughs> So it, it, it is a process, and I, I can appreciate that. So, but I, let's like, get back, so let's get back to sepsis. Yeah. So what's important in the field? What do we need to do? We need to recognize it. I, I right. think number and one, identify that, right, and, and ad- some, identify correctly. And that's something at the EMT <clears throat> level, right. okay? 
you have to be able to recognize a tachycardia, tachypnea. You have to recognize somebody that has a recognized potential source of infection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like somebody who's bed bound, somebody who has a Foley catheter, somebody who has someone a who's G-tube. In, someone who's in any patient that you receive from an extended care facility, whether it's an assisted is a source living of or nursing home, Guaranteed. just consider that they're septic. Yeah. yeah. Just I mean, like you don't even have to, like all of this criteria that we're talking about, all this stuff. Um, and by the way, the British Journal essentially came down to they're like, you, yeah, for red flag sepsis patients, you can probably just give antibiotics. That was their that was right. their conclusion. Um, so if you're going into you know an assisted living or a nursing home, and I've got a 94 year old who just is you know generally not feeling well and is febrile just to touch, I, like I don't know what more I need to do before I'm like that that patient probably. But septic. the skilled nursing facility didn't give Tylenol, <laughs> even though they have the standing order for it, and they give you the piece no, of paper that says. You know, PR and Tylenol for temperature greater than 100.4. I don't care. It's like, why? I know. Why Why? Why didn't you give it? Look, I I don't know. So recognition is important. The next thing is knowing, okay, how sick really are they? And that's, I think that comes with time too. Like, you know, a brand new EMT might not have. That's where the gestalt comes in. Yes. it It comes with practice, which that's, it's okay to not be good at it. Or it comes with getting an accurate blood pressure. Yeah, that too. You know, you know, and, and then just maybe looking at the person saying, well, like they're alert and oriented right. and their color is good. They're not to Kipnik. Like, you know, sometimes you can just look at the patient and say, oh, like maybe their heart rate is because I just walked them down three flights of stairs uh, to get to the ambulance. So, <laughs> so Ed, walk, walk with me on this. Like, this is yep. how I would assess people for sepsis. I would go into a place and the first thing I'm looking for is source of infection. Yeah, absolutely. Any recent surgery, any any artificially made portal into their body is yeah. automatically a, a yes. Check sure. the box. Yeah. Okay. So you got a Foley. You've had a Foley in the last week. Mm-hmm. Um, anything like that. That's a, Re- that's a recent check. intubation. Recent intubation. Recent hospitalization. Recent hospitalization. Mm-hmm. Anything like that. That's that checks that box for source of infection. Okay. The second thing I would look at is heart rate. I don't want to say, are they tacky? They're, they're generally sitting there or they're laying there. They shouldn't have a heart rate of a hundred. Right. There's no reason for it. Okay. The next thing I would do is while I'm doing that, because I'm getting a pulse, I'm feeling their skin. Mm-hmm. What's their skin right. like? What are their extremities like? Are they cold? Are they warm? Do they have good cap refill? That's tipping me off. Something's not right here. And while I'm doing that now, I'm also watching the respiratory rate. It takes 15 seconds, folks. You multiply by four. It's not that hard. At that point, I've got a pretty good idea. Okay, this is sepsis. This is potential sepsis. I don't even have to get a blood pressure and I know what I'm going on. But then the next thing is your BP. And get a good BP. Right. Actually listen to it. Right. Don't put don't throw it on a Dynamap and just kind of hope for the best. Right. Because here's the thing with Dynamaps. And and all NIBPs work on oscillometrics. Okay, they work on map. But the problem is, if you have really low low blood pressures, sorry, I'm mumbling, (laughs) (laughs) really low blood pressures, a lot of times and, and you'll see this on some monitors, you'll get a very you'll get a hypertensive. BP number, but with a narrow pulse pressure. Yes. Have you ever seen this before? Yep. You'll get that 150 over 137, and it's really 50 over 37. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, don't trust, you know, trust it to a point, but correlate. And then feel, if you feel the radial, you're going to have an idea of whether 
that's an accurate number. Like if they have a very thready, barely palpable pulse on their radial. Right. Somebody with 150 systolic, that's going to be bounding. If you can barely feel it, something's not right. And this is all this is. This is basic stuff. Notice I haven't talked about putting a needle in. Nobody have talked about starting fluid, doing any pressors. This is all I've literally sat there for three minutes. I've looked at the patient. I put my hands on the patient. And now I've got a decent idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that's all EMT level stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. At that point, the EMT should be going, hey, you know what? Or if, you, if you're if you on a unit where you have your medic with you, hey, it's yours. Right. <laughs> if, if you're on a tiered system where you're looking for a medic unit to come in, this is the person you need that, especially if they're altered or they're not acting right. This is somebody who's potentially very sick. And think back in your mind. If you think it's BS, if you think this is just general weakness, I'm going to say again, 40% mortality. And you just quoted that one study, 36%. And that number, And 50% in shock. Right. And folks, that number has been consistent through, I would say I've read probably a dozen of these studies. So So that number is pretty good. Right. So, and right, and we're going to link all this stuff in the show notes too. But uh, Josh Farkas has written about this at length um, over the past couple of years. There's actually a petition on uh, the MCRIT site to essentially do away with the new sepsis protocols because they're actually more stringent. They eliminate more gestalt, and they're just not really all that great. But essentially, what it comes down to, right. um, we're changing. You know, the initial traditional approach was we start, you know, fluid antibiotics early and move on to pressors late, right? Um, and, you know, stress dose steroids toward the end. And what they're kind of pushing for now is called the escalation, de-escalation strategy, where we start fluid antibiotics and pressors and the metabolic resuscitation with uh, something like hydrocortisone, uh, vitamin C, and thiamine earlier. <coughs> now, so... Yeah, this is the pulmaric stuff. This is yeah. this is kind of cool, but yeah. it's there's a lot of controversy about it. Oh, sure, and there always will be, because whenever there's something new, that's, that's how it's going to work. I think the bigger point is... We've already kind of established that medics are able to start antibiotics in the field, right? I, right. Think, I think given what we, we just talked about, that's mm-hmm. pretty much out there. Um, we know we can start fluid because that's what right. we've been doing for years, for better or for worse. And then norepinephrine, epinephrine, and vasopressin right. are medications that we carry, generally speaking. Right. Right. And if you're not carrying, like, you know, norepinephrine, then that's something that you can certainly Look, if get. you're not carrying norepi or, or levofed or vasopressin, Look, you got good old Epi works just fine in the mm-hmm. early stages, especially yeah. like for short term. I mean, yeah, you'll get yeah. people go like, "Well, you know, I don't like the beta effects of Epi." It's Stop like, it. all right, listen, if Stop. I've got somebody with a map of fifty and they're not perfusing their kidneys and their their vital organs, right. an Epi drip will get them where I need them to be. It'll right. close well, the container again, enough. It, it comes back, and to you what know what? Once earlier. they're in the hospital, switch them to whatever the hell you want yeah well it comes back to what we were talking about earlier where medicine's more of an art and not a science Correct. where right. you can run into a situation like you know what yeah epinephrine at, at either at a push dose or at a drip might not be ideal but in the 20 minutes that i have them together in the hospital, it's probably a better choice and well, you can always switch them over to the other medications these people and then start also the forget that levofed in the long term also is not ideal because it can cause shunting to the core sure. and then now you damage your extremities right so i think this is more of the provider discretion, like you, you, you have to look at the patient, assess the patient. If your patient's on, you know, a vasopressant and they're per, like perfusing well to their extremities, mm-hmm. okay, no, no big deal. Mm-hmm. Like if someone comes in on an epi drip or had some push dose epi just to kind of boost them in right. the twenty minutes it took to get to you, then you go, okay, great. Like 
they were stable when they got here. Let's just switch them to something that'll continue to keep them stable. Right. And I think people focus too much on just one well, thing. Norepi gets a bad rap. It because does. Because leave a fed, you know, the old school people tell you, oh, leave a fed, leave them dead. You uh-huh. know? <laughs> yeah, that's very and funny. It, it can only go in in a central line. It can't go peripherally. Yes. Nonsense. That yes, that's, 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 also that's wrong. It can. Um, <laughs> it's, we, we've looked at it. It's got good alpha effects. It's got mm-hmm. good... Good beta effects doesn't have some of the other effects that Epi has. Um, the thing is, is that people aren't comfortable with it. People aren't familiar with it, and they get itchy. For oh. for, for the pre-hospital world, I mean, look, yeah. Epi is Epi is a go-to. I would I would absolutely go to Epi on on a on a patient. Well, and also shock. consider with a medication like Levofed, we for so long we've been demonizing it as just you know that's just what it is. Yeah, right. That. The last no, step before, you know, yeah, like pathology. no matter no matter how much information comes out about it, where it's like, you know what, actually physiologically it might make more sense mm-hmm. to give le- like levofed over dopamine mm-hmm. as a presser. Um <sighs> which uh, which dopamine is just a garbage presser in the oh first place. But can we just you know can we just that, ignore dopamine? I wasn't even gonna say it, but Right. Know. But you know, so that it, like there's there is stuff coming out about it. And essentially as long as you know you're not giving you know, leave a fed to someone who's in hypovolemic shock, you're probably okay. Yeah. Right. And, and we might be getting ahead of ourselves because pre-hospitally, I don't know that we're with the patients long enough to, you know, have this be really the, too much of an yeah, issue. Yeah, but some of our audience but, might have those really long distance transports. Sure. You may be 45 minutes from a hospital. This may be beneficial for your patients. It may be life-saving. Right. Well, and absolutely. So, but that's why I want to point out like the antibiotics, the fluid, um, epinephrine, and then you can also make this cocktail of hydrocortisone, vitamin C, and thiamine as well. This you is have to, really you have interesting. To have your this is throw it together, but this is a really interesting thing, and this is you know Palmaric stuff is interesting. I think, I think there's a reticence about it because it's so brand new, it's so right. radical, but it's so simple. Yeah, because it's 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 vitamins and a <laughs> steroid. This is <laughs> it's like, come on, really? That's what it was. That's what we needed <laughs> this whole time. <laughs> this whole time, this is what it was all about. I could have just I been mean, giving you oranges and energy drinks, and, and you would have <laughs> been fine. <laughs> Listen, when you got the flu, orange Gatorade is the bomb. It really Get is. out! No, no, boo! Yellow, <laughs> yellow Gatorade, lemon lime. There isn't right. a Negative. debate. No, There's sir. not a debate. No, sir. You're we're gonna, wrong. We're oh, gonna, we're gonna agree we're to gonna fight about this off air. Blue, I like blue. Blue, <laughs> I do. It's uh. good. Philistine. Not <laughs> not the frost, not the glacier blue, just the straight blue. Like the nuclear, right, like the nuclear look, or like, do you remember blue listen, color. Don't talk on a tangent. Do you remember when Gatorade had flavors are like orange, lemon, lime? No, they had colors. And now, no. now well, because now like it what? like it was like, green, red, or orange. No, but they, yeah. they but they would be named something like like the yellow is lemon lime, right? It but is? Now, yeah, but now yeah. they have things like Arctic Frost. Yeah. What is that? It's, I don't know. It's blue. It's it's blue. Like it's blue <laughs> raspberry maybe. White, I, don't, I don't know. It doesn't. They like have white the, Gatorade. I, I don't agree with that. What does that taste like? I have no like idea. Like emptiness. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's empty. Taste. It's, it tastes. It just tastes like my void, and I can't so, do that. <laughs> so anyway, let's get back to pressers. <laughs> so yeah, so we're in a situation now where, and we've kind of talked about you know a couple of these things. So how would you do this in the field? Now, there's a lot of talk about starting central lines, and I feel like that's no. just Whoa. too much that nope. we need to do. Don't you need a sterile like, field for that, friend? And and you know what? If they're that sick, drill them. Yeah. We have right. a central line. Right. It's called an IO. Yeah. yeah. The so flow put rates, it in their the, head. The, the flow <laughs> like, rates are, are equivalent. You don't have the the infection dangers. You don't have the complications that you have with putting in a central line. Right. Look, could we do it? Yes. I mean, can I? Could I put in a, a subclavian with an ultrasound if I was pra- if I practiced at it? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I could probably, you know, I could probably do a lot of things if I practice. I could fly well, yeah. an airplane. <laughs> but the, the point is, what's it going to do for the patient? Right. If they're and, really sick, drill them. Yeah. If they're, you know, if... Well, but I it, think the point is that you can give these through a peripheral line. You could. Without a problem. Like, right. So, it, yeah, I, I agree with you that if the argument is you have to start a central line, all right, cool, drill them. So, so take each thing but, step by step, like, what do you think we should do? And I'll, I'll play this and we can I, just can so fight us. I... <laughs> I think the first easy thing is moderation of fluid administration. Mm-hmm. We, I already, agree. we already know that, you know, then from, from the Missouri study, you know, a, a liter is perfectly appropriate as long as we're keeping their systolic at 90. I think, so I think that's the first what is easy with thing this? that we can do. I don't do know if you guys cheap. have seen. Yeah, um, I agree. The, it's like 30 milliliters per kilogram yep. fluid boluses. And mm-hmm. I feel like I understand the thought behind it because it's the idea is to prevent fluid overload. However, like, what if you have someone that weighs... Well, if you have a 100-kilogram patient, which most of us do... Right. 30 mLs per kg, that's a 3-liter bolus. Right. And, right. like, to me, that's, that's beyond nonsensical. That's just... Yeah. Well, and but again, that's something that we... that's That was an older theory that we had. And, and that's, that's what they're finding out. That's what we're finding out that we're wrong. Giving more liters, right. get yeah. more fluid, get more crystalloid. And now but all it's still of a being sudden... practiced. Geez, why are their right. lungs whited out? Oh. Oh, yeah. That's odd. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> why are they suddenly... Why do they suddenly have edema? There's a lot of fluid there. That's crazy. Wow, that's oh a lot. Yeah. After I gave them that much, it's I, weird that they have more. I think... I, I'm tending to start to, I, you know, I, I've listened to people some talk, some people talk on this, and I really think for the, for the paramedic level people, I think yes, you should definitely start an IV. You should get yep. the biggest IV you can. You should probably hang 500 mLs to a liter, not with the idea of giving more than a liter, but only mm-hmm. if they're a little bit hypotensive. Only if they're a little bit. Yeah. This is that that medium mild. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. Most people will tolerate a liter with no problem. Sure. Right. Okay. Yeah. If they're really, and this is where you kind of got to start thinking. You know, if their blood pressure is low, you should be able to calculate a mean arterial pressure. Well, we talked about this on another episode too. Right. Like, it's probably it's on your monitor. It's not hard to calculate, especially because it, we all have it's the we systolic have but plus it's, two times the diastolic divided by three. Right. There's but also it, smartphones. It's also probably on your monitor. <laughs> wait, yes. wait, what's it's a prob- smartphone? Smartphone? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's it's probably a, on your monitor. It should near be on your monitor. You mean that's the thing I have all my games on? Yeah. Oh. yeah, that thing that the games are on and that your text messaging app but, is on. You can you can like Google <laughs> MAP calculator and then you plug in your numbers and then it it comes up for you. So what do you think is a good map? I I, I mean um, I, think I like I think the 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 gold standard is sixty five. Yeah, I agree. or greater. Is that what they're using in your That's place? That's what they're using at my place, okay. and I f- for the most part agree with that. Um, I think that if it's a very small person who mm-hmm. is already like if it's like an eighty pound year old old lady an 80 pound an 80, pa- an 80 pound <laughs> 80 year old lady that's what i meant to say horrendous then i don't know if she necessarily needs a 65 map like i think maybe a 55 sure. or greater is okay for her okay well, and, and you, but, you mentioned this earlier that's the problem with a lot of the way that the charts and guidelines yes. are laid out because it doesn't take yeah it's one size effect. fits all it's kind of like the idea of bmi like all. your bmi like i'm considered i think i'm actually considered obese mm-hmm based on BMI. Uh-oh. Um, but it doesn't take into account muscle mass. It doesn't right. take into account, well, you know, a lot of other factors. So yeah. I think it's the same idea here. Your map, the gold standard should be 65 or greater. It's okay if it's a little below that. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people freak out when it's like a 60 map. And I'm like, it's it's okay. It's fine. They're stable. It's fine. Yeah. They're stable. Right. So I think, I think that's a good place to start, though, is 65. It's okay. pretty good. So... 
if as a paramedic, if if I've got a low map or I've got a low systolic BP, let's say I've got a you know systolic of 80 and I've got signs that this patient's not perfusing well and the fluid's not working. Well, that's when I'd move into something like epinephrine. Mm. Right. If that like we if we know that we if, before going into protocol changes and all this other stuff, if I know that I have epinephrine and every medic truck has epinephrine, yeah. I don't have a problem like throwing together a dirty drip like, you know, one in a hundred thousand and then running it in through a slow infusion. And I and I think that's the smartest way to do it right. for most of the paramedics out for most paramedic programs out there is that go with what you're comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you give somebody this really look, I could put leave a fed on my truck tomorrow. You know, mm-hmm. the problem is, is who's going to use it? No, who's going right. to be comfortable with it? And right. even no, the competency that I'm going to do is not going to get them comfortable. Yeah. And it's, it's but a, you know it's what? A new everybody thing, everyone knows that epinephrine. Right. Everybody knows push dose. And, you know, everybody's OK with that. Yeah. And that's going to help people. Sure. Absolutely. So the first couple steps that I, I think would be if you're not in a project that's implementing this is you have the fluid thousand cc's, you know, over however much time to actually get their map to 90 Failing that, you know, I don't mind the 250cc bolus um, that we talked about earlier, but I tend to think if you throw, if you can throw in a, you know, drip dose, push dose epi, yeah, and try and get their map up to 90. Give the first 500 you know. and see how they do. Right. Yeah. Then call I, your, I think then call I think your, reasonable. then call your doc. Now, if you're in a project that has a long-term transport, that's a different conversation. I'm not wholly opposed to them trying to run antibiotics if they have a 45-minute transport to the hospital. So, right. what antibiotic? I. Which is Ceftriaxone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Sorry. Yeah, Why, that's, Jess? That's, it's no, easier. Jess. To, it's easier to say Rosefin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't mean that. I'm like, why are you picking Rosefin? Um, so Rosefin is a broad spectrum. Typically, you don't need a large, like a, a long amount of time to put it in. The typical runtime is 30 minutes. It can actually be administered push dose. So you can just do. You can give it IM. You too, can right? give it IM. It actually works better i am for certain things like for um i think it's vaginalis and uti i want to say it was okay. i don't remember off the well, top of my head but so uh, but again just as, mm. as, a, as a clarifier we're not going to know what the source of their no, infection is clearly field, so, so but it can be given push dose which is nice because but it's easy to drop it's easy, easy to dose it's, it's easy, easy to, to give reconstitute. it can be given mm-hmm. multiple ways yes and all of which are in a paramedic scope of practice right and it's broad spectrum yes so if that person is really sick, if you've got that long distance transport and we know that sepsis has a 40 percent mortality, this is something this might be an option for some of these places. And I think it would be a great. option. It's worth starting a discussion with your medical point. director. Correct. And it also, I think, um, just maybe getting away from the large fluid boluses and then saying, OK, let's do a moderate to let's do a more conservative fluid bolus. Let's use those pressors and then let's give this first line antibiotic that's broad spectrum. I think that would, in the long term, produce a better outcome, at least for like the first couple yeah, of I days. Yeah, like, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I like small fluid boluses. Well, I think like about it 250 this way. to 500 because I can give more. The example sure. we said before. Right. You, can't, you, yeah, can't you can't take, take it back. You right? can't yeah. take a right. liter back. You can't back. take it back. The example you said before, if you have a 100 kilogram patient and it's 30 mLs per kg, mLs per yeah. kg yeah. that's three liters the normal human blood volume is five liters oh no we're so I, I think just we're given, all agreed that that's yeah way you've just too given much. someone like, three-fifths of their blood volume via just normal saline yeah so you've just diluted their blood right somebody who's had impaired circulation especially to their oh wait kidneys oh, oh wait. you mean the ones Ooh. that take off the hmm. extra water <laughs> so strange your gfr so, is down so your... if we can decrease 
how much we're flooding them and increase their body's ability to fight this infection. I think that's just a win-win all around, right? Yeah. Yeah, I no, I, I agree. So yeah. I, I, I do like the idea of just simple, like simple bolus stuff for fluid um, and, and at least epinephrine to start. Um, the long distance stuff, I, ceftriaxone is fine. I think just start it, give it. Um, I, again, I don't know how many people are doing a 45 minute long transports with septic patients. Um, I think there's I, people I know out there. there. I know they're out there. They're be. out there. Yeah. I'd um, love to hear from them. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting to hear if you're, if you're in a project that's doing that, let us know and let us know what your protocols are. Um, so there's, and again, this is another kind of point of contention where it's starting to come out more in the literature. As I said, we're going to link to the stuff that Farkas has put out, uh, on MCRIT and Palmcrit. Um, a lot of really good stuff coming out of there. So let us know what you guys are working on. Let us know how this works out for you. Um, in the meantime, be sure that you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and uh, talk to Alexa. Ask Alexa to play the overrun. Um, check, <laughs> out, check out our merchandise as well. We have T-shirts and baby onesies and all this other stuff as well. Um, and thank you guys for listening because it, we're, we've been having a lot of fun doing this show. It's great to talk to everybody. Um, thanks for all the emails and everything like that. So for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Jess Mastercola. And we will talk to you next time. And don't flood your patients. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Use Epi.